0: Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, we're going to read down to verse 39. And um, before we do look at this, let me just briefly ask the Lord for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, again, we bow before you. We lift up our voices. We cry out to you, the infinite God. We acknowledge that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. And so we pray that you would build your church by... Uh, reviving and restoring the souls of your people through the ministry of your word. We pray that you would do as you have promised and that you would save and that you would build up and that you would sanctify through the ministry of the word, especially as it's read and preached this morning. We pray that you would make us to see the Lord Jesus in all of his mediatorial glory and that you would cause us to flee to him for life and for joy and for peace and for rest in our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name amen luke chapter 5 beginning in verse 27 and luke has been tracing the inaugural ministry of the lord jesus and he has been focusing on those early days in his ministry after his baptism after his temptation as he is driven out now into the public arena and uh, we have most recently seen jesus uh, healing lepers and forgiving and healing a paralytic And now Luke records for us these words. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Who knew that Jesus knew so much about wine, by the way? But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I am sure that almost everybody in this room had one of the largest feasts that they've had all year this past week. It is the uh, only time in our country in which just about every single person is feasting at the same time—an overabundance of food and o- overabundance of family. Now imagine if you were um, coming back from Thanksgiving and I asked you how it went, and you said, "Well, it was—it was not what I thought it was going to be. We had amazing food. All of our family came into town." And our crazy uncles who happened to be politicians and ministers were there and they were walking around asking us why we invited so-and-so and and hovering over us and and telling us, you know, if you were really thankful, you would be giving this food to the poor. If you were really thankful, you wouldn't be having that second helping of the sweet potato casserole. If you were really thankful, you had two pieces of sweet potato pie, two. If you were really thankful, you wouldn't be doing that. If you were really spiritually minded, you would not be doing what you're doing right now. Now, that's the best illustration I have for you of what's happening here in this account, in Jesus calling Levi the tax collector and everything that transpires in this text. And it is just as wild as what you would imagine it to be if it were you in that situation and you had people coming in and functionally condemning you for feasting and for enjoying the things that God's given you and for being thankful for all that God has done for you. Now, it is an unexpected account. It is uh, it is in one sense very different than everything that went before this. The two accounts before this, remember Jesus heals the leper, the unclean man. Who comes to him and bows down and says if you're willing you can make me clean and Jesus touches him and he's clean. Jesus takes his uncleanness and makes him clean. And then the next account that we saw last week where the paralytic's friends bring him to the house that is packed where Jesus is preaching and teaching and remember no one let him in and they had to tear the tiles up and they let him down and Jesus says son your sins are forgiven you and then to demonstrate that he had power to do that he said rise take up your bed and walk. And this account, on the surface, seems detached from those other two accounts. Levi physically doesn't have leprosy. He doesn't have a physical deformity. He's not a paralytic. In fact, he is a fairly well-adjusted, financially stable member of this Jewish society under Roman captivity. And yet there is something that connects this passage to those other two passages in the most wonderful way. There is a common thread and a common theme, and that thread is this. Jesus is going to the unlikely. Jesus is going to the unclean. Jesus is going to the socially unacceptable. Jesus is going to the spiritually unacceptable. Jesus is going to the morally vile. And that is... Contrary to everything that the religious and political leaders in Israel in the days of Christ expected a great teacher and prophet like Jesus to do. And here Jesus is showing himself to be the same compassionate and merciful savior that he was to the leper and that he was to the paralytic. And now in maybe what is an even more extreme example, he is showing himself to be, and we get this phrase from this passage, a friend of sinners the redeemer, the holy one, the sinless son of God, the infinite God, the one who is the eternal son with his father, free from any hint of unrighteousness, is going to take to himself in this passage the title, a friend of sinners. Um, That that might not hit you in any kind of substantial way uh, because you're so used to hearing these things. But there is something shocking that we're going to see this morning and we're going to look at two things as we consider this passage. First, we're going to consider Jesus the friend of sinners and then secondly, we're going to consider Jesus and the new wine of the gospel. Now notice Luke says in verse 27 after this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now the very first thing that Luke is doing remember Luke is a doctor. He's looking at details. He is looking at all the nuances of everything that Jesus is doing. He is paying unbelievable attention to all the accounts about Jesus. And what he says here functionally is that Jesus is going out purposefully seeking his people. And he fixes his eyes. Not just he saw, but that he intently looked for this tax collector named Levi. Now, Jesus is gathering his apostolic band. He is already brought Simon Peter to himself. He has already brought Andrew to himself. He has already, presumably, already drawn James and John, those four of the 12. Now, Luke is telling us that here is another disciple. Here's another one of the apostolic band, and he is so incredibly unlikely. Uh, Phil Reichen says, when it came time to choose his disciples, Jesus did not go out and find 12 theologically trained, morally upright, spiritually disciplined men. Instead, he gathered a motley crew of everyday sinners. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) He gathered a motley crew of everyday sinners. They hardly seem like the kind of men who would set the world on fire. But when they met Jesus, their lives were changed forever, and they became courageous for Christ. Um, That's what's happening here with Levi. Levi was a tax collector. What you probably know is that tax collectors were despised. In Israel, in the days of Christ, and yet what you may not know is why they were so despised and how uh, wicked they actually were. I went digging for some descriptions of tax collectors and uh, one modern Jewish historian named Alfred Adersheim uh, in one of his works on the social life in Israel said, "Uh, Wherever an Israelite in this day went, he encountered in city or country the well-known foreign tax gatherer. He was met by his insolence, by his vexatious intrusion, by his exactions, exactions. The fact that he was the symbol of Israel's subjection to foreign domination only made the matter worse. You see, tax collectors were basically subcontractors of the Roman Empire. Here, Levi is a Jew. Levi's name is a Jewish name. He is one of his fellow countrymen. Um, he will also be known by the name Matthew. He wrote the first gospel. Why does he have two names? Uh, John Calvin surmises that uh, Levi has two names, this being his birth name, but he probably went by Matthew to avoid more of the hostility from fellow Jews who hated tax collectors who were Jewish and who had subcontracted their services out to the Roman government. And the Roman government had all kinds of taxes wherever you walked. Imagine if you left here today and you were walking out of the park and you don't even get to the end of the road and you've hit like two tax collectors who have made you empty out all your pockets and your purse and your wallet, who know everything that's on you and who tell you, okay, you now have to pay the poll tax. You now have to pay the ground tax. Adersheim will tell us a little bit about the taxes that were going on in Israel. Listen to this. In general, the providences of the Roman Empire, what Palestine belonged to them, were subject to two great taxes, the poll tax, which is basically the income tax, and the ground tax. The tax collectors also levied import, export dues, bridge tolls, road money, town dues, and if it was a peaceful inhabitant, They would tax the tiller of the soil, the tradesman, the manufacturer at every level. The caravan, the traveler, the peddler encountered their vexatious presence at every bridge, along every road, at every entry to the city. I want you to think about this. You would hate this person too. I'm I'm trying to think of a modern illustration. The best I can do is, is... the people that work at Verizon that try to sell you everything constantly and you can't get out of the building, but they're everywhere. And they're trying to get as much money from you everywhere, and they have authority to take whatever they want, and if you don't give it, you will be imprisoned. And this is what Israel is living under. You see, the tax collectors reminded Israel of the domination of Herod. There's actually uh, one historical note that when Herod died, Uh, many of the Jews called for a feast day and said that no mourning was allowed because the terrible taxation system was finally lifted from Israel's head. This was absolute enslavement, bondage. Here is one of the foremost tax collectors. Here is one who extorted money. You know, frankly, um, he is functionally a Palestinian mafia. These are are the Palestinian gangsters going around and making sure that people are paying their dues under the authority that they are imposing on them. And so hated were the tax collectors by the Jews, and so hated were the tax collectors in the days of Jesus, that a special category was carved out in the rabbinical writing for them, that if a tax collector entered your home, everything in the house was unclean. So... They were hated as much or more than the prostitutes, than everybody else they deemed sexually immoral, everybody else they deemed unclean. They had their own category, Israel, under uh, Pharisaic, scribal, and and Sadduceic rule in its religious uh, perversions and system had basically excommunicated an entire group of people and said they are beyond salvation, they are beyond um, favor with God, they are beyond the blessings of God, They are functionally living as excommunicated people among us, and we have to tolerate them. Now, that gives you a little bit of an idea about why this is so striking. Um, Luke tells us Jesus came to this one Levi while he was sitting at the tax booth. Now, this is amazing. So far, men have found Jesus in a boat, um, in a extortioner's office. They will find him up a tree in chapter 19, Zacchaeus, and then hanging on a cross on death row. This is where people find Jesus. They're not finding him in, in their attempts at religiosity. In fact, everybody in this passage that's trying to be religious doesn't come to Jesus, and everybody who is oblivious to their need for him, and yet objects of his mercy and grace he finds and they find him and they come to him and he changes them. John Calvin actually says that he believes that Jesus singles out this one in particular of the apostolic band in order to show just how free his grace is, just how undeserved, just how unmerited, just how absolutely striking it is that we contribute nothing to salvation. That's the point of Levi. Here is a, here is a money grubbing vial socially unacceptable, worthless base man and Jesus says, you are going to be mine, follow me. And notice that um, no sooner does Jesus come to him and say to him, follow me. Notice verse 28. Levi has found the grace of God because he's found the redeemer. Uh, We don't know what else transpired. We don't know what Levi had heard about Jesus. We don't know what else Jesus may be said to him. But what we do know is that when Jesus seeks the lost, he seeks them to be disciples and to follow him. And that is always the word of discipleship. He says, follow me. And notice verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, there is a striking picture of conversion here. Um, there's all these different pictures of conversion in the Gospels and in the Bible. Some are more subtle in nature. Uh, I think of Nicodemus, who, remember, Jesus comes to and says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He comes by night, and, and you don't know whether he's converted. And then he's sort of sort of defending Jesus later on in John 12, when he says, "Does our man condemn? Does our law condemn a man before it hears him?" And then at the end of the gospel, he's taking the body of Jesus and he's anointing it for burial. Clearly, Nicodemus has been converted, but we don't know when. We don't know how. Here, there is a striking example of that radical, instantaneous, uh, very evident picture of conversion. Here is a man whose whole life is bound up with extorting money and oppressing his fellow countrymen. And and doing unscrupulous business principles. And in a second, he's converted and he leaves everything. He leaves the tax office. He never goes back. Now, it's very interesting. Zacchaeus will be in chapter 19. The one that finds Jesus up in the sycamore tree. He also is a tax collector. He's the one that says, Lord, look, if I've taken anything unjustly, I'll give back four. After Jesus has redeemed him. But we have no intimation that he didn't go back to tax collecting. In fact, John the Baptist will tell those who come to him who were soldiers and who were tax collectors and others, he doesn't say you have to leave what you're doing right now and the only way to be a Christian is to go on the mission field. The only way to be a true disciple of Jesus is to go into full-time Christian ministry. He says, don't take more than what's appointed to you. Be content with your wages. Live a godly life in the vocation in which you're called. But here... We're told that Levi leaves everything. There is a sense, and I I don't want to leave you without this this morning. There is a very real sense where Jesus calls everyone who's going to really and truly follow him by faith to leave everything. It doesn't look the same in every situation. But unless you leave all to follow Christ, remember Jesus will say in this gospel, unless you hate, he'll actually use the word hate to show the disparity between your affection for relatives and him, unless you hate your father and mother, unless you love me more than all of these loved relatives, you are not worthy of me. Levi is showing that he has responded to the grace of God. He has received that grace. He has become an object of that grace. His life now reflects that whatever it is, he is going to be with the savior. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Whatever it takes for Levi, it took leaving the tax booth. Now, Levi doesn't give up everything, does he? You might say, well, wait a minute. It says he left everything and followed him. But in the next verse, he's throwing a great feast at his house and inviting all his friends. So He still has his possessions. He still has his domestic affairs in order. And now he is a transformed man instantly. This man who oppressed and abused and used people and extorted money from people instantly. He's opening his home, He's using all of his goods to bless others. He's seeking to see others come to know Jesus. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. He wants all of his fellow despised, disgusting, morally bankrupt friends to know Jesus. And so notice, Luke tells us, Levi made him a great feast in his house. It's an act of devotion. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when when our hearts are changed and we're brought off our selfishness and our pride and our um, consumption with our own lives and, and we see who Jesus is and we come to Christ and we follow him and, and, and we're willing to let go of whatever will be an obstacle to that, it becomes evident, the generosity, the zeal, it, it, it becomes an overflowing desire to show devotion to Christ and to honor the Lord Jesus. This is what Levi does. He instantly, nobody has to, he doesn't go through a 12-week course on Christianity Explored. He doesn't. He doesn't go through the latest outreach program at the synagogue. He doesn't read a book about how to be an effective witness to Jesus when you're an introvert. He doesn't go through any of that sort of training. He just instantly thinks, I love the Savior, the Savior has redeemed me, I will open my home, I will use what he's given me, and I will do this for him, and I will celebrate because he has redeemed me. This idea of celebrating is linked to the idea of redemption through Luke's gospel. You'll remember it's only Luke who tells the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, and the end of that story is moving to the fact that when the son returns and the father's already out there, ready to welcome him back. The father's already waiting for him to embrace him. And when that son comes back, he puts the best robe on him and he puts the ring on him. And he tells his servants to go kill the best fatted calf. This, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And yet remember, Jesus tells that story in the context of opposition from the Pharisees, the same opposition as he's experiencing here. Uh, Not everybody was celebrating that Jesus had redeemed Levi. Not everybody was happy that Jesus had gone after the most socially base and outcast. Um, notice, Levi has all his friends there, that large company of tax collectors and others. And notice verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're, they're not they are they are missing the fact that something marvelous has happened that that everything the bible had spoken about through all of redemptive history for thousands of years was coming true before their eyes the long awaited redeemer was here the messiah who god had prophesied in the early days just after the fall that That he would send a redeemer, a seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. He was here. Every prophecy, every word pointing to this one. And now here he is and he's doing what he's come into the world to do. He's come to redeem sinners. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And they are bitter and self-righteous. John Calvin, listen to this. I want you to really focus on this. Calvin really has this penetrating insight with what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, he says, hypocrites, being satisfied and intoxicated with a foolish confidence in their own righteousness, do not consider the purpose for which Christ was sent in the world. They do not acknowledge the depth of evil in which the human race is plunged, or the dreadful wrath and curse of God which lies on all, or the accumulated load of vices which weighs them down. Listen to this. Calvin says, Jesus came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and the condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. If we consider that this was his office and the end of his coming into the world, if we remember that this was the reason why he took upon him our flesh, why he shed his blood, why he offered the sacrifice of his death, why he descended even to hell, we will never think it strange that he should gather to salvation those who have been the worst of men and who have been covered with a mass of crimes. Now, I want to say this this morning. That's absolutely counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive in your self-righteous heart and in mine by nature. I had a girl... Say to me, I was downtown out the other day and I said, how's your day going? She's like, just trying to do good. You know, it's all about doing good. And I should have said, you know, that in itself is evil. That's just full of self-righteousness and pride. She's trying to do good because it's all about doing good, doing good stuff. I mean, that's how she told me her day was going. It's like, how you doing? I'm self-righteous. <laughs> because the Bible says that we're all condemned under the wrath of God, because of our depravity and pollution and wickedness, our wayward hearts, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. And the Pharisees wouldn't see that. You see, they had cleaned themselves up morally, religiously. They were going through the motions. We're going to see just how much they went through the motions. But they didn't see their need for the Savior, here is this tax collector who does, this despised, rejected one. You know, there's this story about uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And at some point, his heart had become burdened for uh, people who had really had their lives just wrecked by sin and who were living in the gutters. And so Booth began gathering all of these uh, sort of homeless and um, people who were socially rejected and outcast, and he started bringing them into the church that he had been worshiping at, and he started seating them in the seats that were for uh, the well-dressed people. This is actually, I mean, it's such a violation of James, but the church was had a sort of VIP section. This happens. That's why James had to write James. And and he began bringing all these filthy people in to hear the gospel, and and the minister was shocked that he was doing it. Now, that shouldn't be shocking to us. By the way, filthy outcasts don't deserve the gospel more than decent, well-dressed, job-keeping individuals. Let me please press that on you, because there's a mistaken notion that somehow those whose lives have been wrecked by sin deserve the gospel. No, they don't. None of us do. But Booth brings them in, and, you know, in a very real sense, Jesus, from the outset of his ministry, is showing us just how far down he is going into the bottoms of society to redeem. And notice, as the Pharisees are grumbling about Jesus having this intimate meal, and he's feasting, he's he's celebrating, he's not morose. Jesus is not uh, cold and indifferent. Yes, he is calling sinners to repent. He is not dismissive of sin. But he is celebrating with them. He's not there lecturing and chiding. Jesus is, uh, is putting himself in the most intimate of settings with sinners. And um, as the Pharisees are grumbling, notice that Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this is, um, this is one of the only times Jesus ever exercises irony, And there's almost a bit of sarcasm. Calvin will actually say that. There's almost a bit of sarcasm in the words of Jesus. He knows that these Pharisees think that they're good, that they're healthy. And his point is, look, if you're so healthy, then you don't need redemption. You don't need a savior. You think you're righteous, then then you don't need help. The only people that ever go to a doctor are people that's sick. Levi knows that he's sick. Sinners that know that they're sick go to a savior. The only time you go to a doctor unless your wife is chotting you to get a physical, is because you're sick, or you think you're sick. And Jesus is the great physician of souls, notice. He says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, um, it's interesting, isn't it, that you move from redemption and celebration to self-righteous investigation, to more self-righteous attempts to dampen what Jesus has actually done in the life of Levi. Um, Calvin will say, Satan uh, can deviate people so easily with the smallest trifles. Notice notice what the Pharisees do next. In verse 33, you might think, if you just heard this, on on a prima facie reading, Jesus just said, those who are righteous don't need a physician. Those who are well don't need help. Those who are sick do. The point is, everybody's sick. You need to see how sick you are. You would think that would silence the Pharisees. You'd think they would be like, you know what? We we really are not that good. We're sorry, Jesus. We're sorry we're being so self-righteous. And you see how hard self-righteousness is to come off of, don't you? How absolutely impossible it is for someone whose heart is just bent on holding on to their own works, their own efforts. And notice that uh, they come right back with another objection. Notice verse 33. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, this is very subtle. Remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus and John are best friends. John's ministry prepared for Jesus's ministry. And you see how subtle the self-righteousness is in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they would come, as it were now, to trick Jesus. This is the first time they try to really do this. And they would say, well, Jesus, you know, what we're noticing about this dinner is that we know that your forerunner and his disciples, they pray and fast, but yours eat and drink. Um, Jesus will actually contrast himself with John in Matthew 11 when he says, You know, John came neither eating or drinking. John had a more ascetic aesthetic lifestyle where he, he was calling people to repentance. There was a sense of weeping and mourning over sins. There was a sense of impending judgment in John's ministry that was appropriate, it was leading up to the need for the Savior. Jesus comes and he's the bridegroom, and there's celebration, and it's feasting, and it's a wedding feast. You know, here is the Lord who said that he betrothed Israel to himself. Here's the God who said, I will betroth you to myself forever. And the bridegroom has come. And it's a celebration. And Jesus said, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look, a drunkard and a glutton. That was the marked difference between John's ministry and Jesus's ministry. And the Pharisees are trying to play on that. And they say, look, you know, not only do our disciples, they don't even start with their own. Not only do the disciples of the Pharisees pray and fast." but John's disciples praying fast. Now, that seems like a pretty logical trap for Jesus. Jesus is not going to be against praying. Nobody prayed like Jesus prayed. And Jesus was certainly not against fasting. Remember, he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness when he overcame the evil one in that first temptation. So, what are you going to do with this, Jesus? Jesus. They pray and fast, yours aren't doing that, yours are feasting. And now Jesus is going to teach us, secondly here, about the new wine of the gospel. And this is really the focal point of this whole passage. Notice that Jesus says in verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying, thousands of years, The prophets had been predicting that Jehovah would come and that he would be the bridegroom of his people. John the Baptist actually uses that illustration when he says that he was the friend of the bridegroom and he rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice and that he was happy to send all of his disciples to the bridegroom. He must increase. I must decrease. Here is the one for whom the world was created. You know, Jonathan Edwards asked that question. What is the end for which God creates the world? And one of the answers, he says, is to get a bride for his son. I want you to think about this. Once this world is done, you're dead, everybody you know is dead, everything's gone. And this world comes to its terminus, and Christ comes again, and the bridegroom comes back, and God banishes everyone who is unrighteous and living in unrepentance And brings everyone to his son who he has redeemed with the blood of his son. There is going to be a wedding feast. That's where human history is moving. Imagine. I'm so sick of the news. I'm sure you are too. Imagine the next time you got on any news website, it said the bridegroom is coming. Because that's where everything's moving. Not who's going to nuke who first. The bridegroom is coming. That's it. Why did God create this world? Because he wanted a bride for his son. And his son came, and he stood there and showed what it looked like for him to redeem a bride to himself. By taking sinners like us and saying, I will wash you with my blood. I will give you white garments of my own righteousness. I will cleanse you, I will purify you, I will make you a beautiful bride, I will unite you together with my people, and everything is moving to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and Jesus says, it's already begun, when he came in his first coming, it had begun, that was the point, the bridegroom had come, everything that God was purposing had begun, and notice, he says, is it possible? To mourn at a wedding, even the Pharisees should have gotten that. There were rabbinical writings that said that no one should have to perform any of the religious ceremonies at a wedding, that they should be free from their religious obligations so that they could enter in to the joy and the feasting and they were missing the point that it was a redemptive wedding that redemption is a joyous feast that Jesus brings the joy of the new creation, he brings the joy a forgiveness of sins. He brings the joy of lives restored. He brings the joy of new creation. And notice that he tells them in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Now, this is a difficult verse for a number of reasons. Um, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 will go to the greatest of lengths to ensure that new covenant believers, like you and me, understand that there is no real spiritual power for the soul in ascetic practices, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. We like to think that there is. C.S. Lewis has this amazing sort of sociological observation about why we are so uh, geared toward Um, asceticism and trying to deny ourselves and you see this the whole the whole workout industry is built on this the whole diet fad industry is built on this and and lewis says you know the goal with fasting in the old testament was that the soul would see how it needed to have its will brought in line with god's will and to be emptied of anything and to realize that we don't have anything and that we need him and that we need to be satisfied by him. That's, that's the purpose of any real fasting is that um, is my soul needs to be filled from outside with things other than created things. I need the Lord to fill me. And Lewis says, but the problem with so much asceticism is that, and we see this all around us, is that people say, I have mastered my own will. I am the master of my will and I exercise all of this discipline in not eating this and not doing this and getting back out there and doing this and overcoming this obstacle. I am the master of my will. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said, false religions built on. Jesus is opposing here. The Pharisees actually had that concept of fasting. Remember when Uh, There was the account of the the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, Luke 17. And the one, the tax collector, won't even look up to heaven. He beats his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee stands there sneering at him, saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. I'm not like prostitutes. I give of all that I have. I fast twice a week. I do this. I do that. I've mastered my own will. And, And Jesus says, this guy goes home justified, and that guy doesn't. It is a big deal. It is a huge deal. So the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to say, don't think religion is in you denying your soul of certain things in order to show yourself to be morally or religiously better. However, Jesus doesn't say here that fasting has no place. And this is very difficult. He says, notice, He says, um, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, commentators, theologians are divided. What does Jesus mean the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away? Well, clearly he's taken away violently in his death on the cross. I think he certainly has that in mind. There is sorrow. There is not feasting. The disciples are mourning. They are lamenting. They are longing. Remember Mary Magdalene outside the tomb of Jesus. Just show me where you've laid him and I'll take his body away. There's not joy. But Jesus said your sorrow will be turned into joy. And that's the resurrection. And then there's an intermingling of sorrow in that 40-day period between Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension. Remember the downcast disciples on the road to Emmaus, why are you so sad? Well, we thought Jesus of Nazareth was the one, but he was crucified, and it's Jesus, and he's there with them, and he opens the scripture, and he gives them gladness again. So there is a period in which Jesus is taken away, in which the disciples fasted. But there's also a sense where, while the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says that he would send the Spirit so that Christ would be with us because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. There's another sense where while Jesus is bodily not present with us and he has promised to come again as the bridegroom, there's a sense where our souls long for greater intimacy with Christ. And so I would say there are times when it's appropriate to fast. There are times when there's sin in our life. And, and Isaiah 58 says that God ordained fasting in one sense to break the bonds of wickedness, that there are times when we afflict our souls because we want more of Christ and we want more nearness to him. But the general sentiment, and I don't want us to miss this, the general sentiment is that what Christ has come into the world to do is to produce real, lasting, deep-seated joy in the souls of his people by virtue of what he does on the cross. Uh, he will give this threefold parable that we don't have time to go into in depth, and he'll say, "You know, nobody puts a new cloth on an old garment. Nobody puts new wine in old wine skins. Nobody immediately desires the new wine over the old because they think the old is better." By the way, it's very enigmatic. But my parents bought some wine in like the 80s. They thought. They were like gonna be a good investment or something. And a couple years ago, we were going through my mom's cabinets and we found this wine. It was the most disgusting thing I have ever drank in my life. (laughs) It was old wine and it was terrible. Um, Jesus is saying that what the Pharisees and what the Sadducees, especially in their day, were doing were they were saying the old covenant preparatory era, and then all the Judaistic things they were imposing on top of that. And that era was better than what Christ had brought. And he said, no, no, no. What I have come to do is to fill up and to make new and to produce joy and that the old is not better. The old is weaker. The old will burst and all the joy will be lost. All the blessing will be lost. You don't go back to the old wineskins. When you have new wine that's fermenting and growing in new wine skins, you don't put something new on something old. You get new garments for the wedding. You get everything that I've brought with me, the new wine of the gospel, the, the blessings of the new covenant. I'm going to say this this morning. I think we miss this. For several reasons. A, I think we miss this if we're believers because we often feel the weight of our own sin and we feel the guilt of our sin and we forget that Jesus went to the cross and became a curse so that he might stretch out his hand for cursed sinners like us and take the condemnation and take the guilt and break the power and raise us up to newness of life. We forget what's already happened to us because we choose to go on dabbling with certain sins. Um, I think that there's a reason we forget about the joy and the newness of the gospel, because we live in such a materialistic and hedonistic society where everybody's seeking to please themselves. And so we have the opposite response. If I'm really a great Christian, then I would be denying myself more here and here and here and here, and I wouldn't be indulging in this and this and this. I wouldn't be enjoying this and this and this. And we can very easily become like the monks, where we think our religion is in flogging ourselves instead of realizing that Christ is the one who produces that joy in our souls. Um, I don't think this is just for that period in the days of Jesus. I think he's saying there's an ongoing joy that ought to be welling up in the souls of God's people because the bridegroom has come. I think that we also... Sometimes we retaliate against this because we see churches that are telling everybody everything's great God just loves you so much. It's so great and we know that we need to be repenting And we know that there's a day of wrath coming and we know in our consciences That God is going to make bare every single thing that everybody's ever done And so I think sometimes we can fall into a trap of thinking You know, I don't want to express too much joy lest I give people the idea That they're okay. No, Jesus sat with sinners in order to call them to repentance. He didn't just sit with them to be the life of the party. There are people that say that. Jesus was the life of the party, all the drinks were in him. Okay, in some sort of refined theological sense, we could say that. But there is a gravity and a weightiness to the fact that Jesus is not only sitting with sinners. But he is encouraging sinners to turn, to follow, to rejoice as they turn and follow, and to keep their eyes on him, the bridegroom. I want to ask you if you have experienced that, if you've experienced the joy that the Lord Jesus brings and, and the sense of feasting. You know, Every time someone turns to Christ, and, and it seems to happen so infrequently where someone's life has really changed, Um, we should be ecstatic. Especially if it's somebody whose life has just been completely wrecked outwardly by sin. But even when some morally decent, socially acceptable person comes to Jesus, and their life is changed, and they've left it all, and they followed him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we feel in our souls that we know so little of that response of feasting and joy that we so long to know. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us that sort of joy in the inner recesses of our minds and our hearts, that you would give us the knowledge that you identified with sinners and you were numbered with the transgressors by standing in our place and being made a curse for us and taking all of our rebellion on yourself. We pray that you would... Uh, give us a new sense of the joy that ought to be ours this morning who are united to you by faith who are part of your bride and who are longing for that great uh, wedding of the bridegroom and so we pray our god that you would work in the hearts and the minds of each and every one of us we pray as we come to feast on the bread and the wine this morning that you would prepare us to come and to rejoice and to give thanks for all that you've done for us we pray these things in jesus name amen